Welcome to This Is Physics, the physics magazine podcast. I'm Julie Gould. As a kid, when you study physics, you're told that with physics, you can do anything, be anything. It's a job that's versatile and you'll develop skills that will set you up for any role. It can take you all over the world, even to the South Pole. In this episode, we'll hear from two of the winter overs. These are people who spend the entire polar winter at the South Pole, and they've been working on two of the three main physics experiments at the South Pole Station. We'll also hear from the baker, who soothes hunger and spirits with her delicious food. For six to nine months of the year, a group of people live in a polar desert, where the temperatures regularly go below minus 70 Celsius or minus 94 Fahrenheit. Their breath freezes as soon as it leaves their mouth. They've lived in darkness for six months, a six-month night, and they have experienced frequent blizzards when the winds howl through the corridors. But despite this being such an extremely challenging environment to live in, it is almost the perfect place for astronomical observations. It gets colder here than the average temperature of Mars, um, which is wild, right? Um, you know, equatorial Mars is actually quite quite mild compared to the South Pole. And so it's just, it's totally otherworldly. You walk out and you're probably standing in a spot that nobody's ever stood in before. And you can look out over this endless expanse of white and realize that you're the only people for, you know, miles. There are three main experiments that happen here. One of them is Ice Cube, a giant one-kilometer cube detector built into the ice that catches ghostly neutrinos. Another is called Bicep. I'm the winter over operator for Bicep Array Telescope. This is Thomas Lepps. He's spent two consecutive winters at the South Pole. And so we're looking at the cosmic microwave background and trying to find signatures of gravity waves and inflation in the polarization of the CMB. Uh, in addition to that, I'm also uh, the National Science Foundation Station Science Lead, which uh, basically just puts me in charge of making sure we have a collegial environment in science and making sure that everything science needs is taken care of in uh, you know, the operations side of the station. The mission for the BICEP array is to keep observing the same bit of sky at different polarizations all day, every day, with the main objective being to find signatures of primordial gravitational waves. Another winter over is Alan Foster, a PhD student at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, USA. We spoke to him just as he was finishing his first winter at the South Pole. I'm a South Pole telescope winter site operator or winter site technician. Uh, and I'm currently at the South Pole Station. The South Pole Telescope is a cosmic microwave background measuring instrument. That means that they're looking for the very first light particles that came from the early universe. Our telescope, the SPT, has a 10-meter dish. It's the largest CMB telescope dish. Um, we have very high angular resolution, so we can see little tiny things on the sky. Uh, and those can be galaxies or galaxy clusters. And so a lot of what SPT has done is measure 
lensing of that light from the early universe around foreground objects. So around big massive galaxy clusters actually lends the light. Uh, and so we use that measurement to subtract the polarization signal that it causes. Um, and other smaller telescopes like BICEP, they are looking for these large scale signatures of inflation. And so our measurement of small scale things helps subtract foregrounds from that measurement. The South Pole Station is accessible for only four months of the year, from November until February. To get there last year, the team flew down on a small, unpressurised twin-engine aircraft, which took them directly through the Transantarctic mountain range. Which looks like just, it looks like Mars, but with ice. It's just totally wild. And then there's just hundreds of miles of nothing. I mean, it could be the surface of Europa. Uh, there's just ice and that's it. And then you start to see a few buildings. You land. The altitude here is like uh, 9,200 feet, I think. And so you're, everyone's out of breath. They hand you your bags and you walk from the air, well, the landing strip to the station and everyone's lined up because they want to take pictures of the plane flying in and out. And so you walk by a line of people, everyone's in their big reds, you're out of breath, and it looks like nothing you've ever seen before. It's just an endless expanse of white. It looks like the ocean and it was about negative 40, negative 50 degrees when I got off the plane. So the air freezes in your nose, your eyelashes freeze, your eyebrows freeze, and then you're on the station and it looks like you're inside the hull of a ship. During this short summer window, the population at the station quadruples and everyone is incredibly busy installing new instruments and upgrading others. Summer times are go, 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 and then you get to winter and things calm down a lot. Hopefully, Fingers crossed your telescope is operating nominally and you just have to do the general, you know, day-to-day -day maintenance and schedule observations. Uh, but other than that, there's a lot of free time. And so uh, I, I really like that kind of, I don't know, dichotomy, right? Summer is fun for some reasons. Uh, it's really intense. It's really exciting. Uh, but winters are much more relaxing, calming. Um, you just feel like you really own the place. Um, you know, you, you feel like you live here and you work here, you make it better. Um, and you get to just go outside more and enjoy the, the dark skies. And uh, I really like that transition. As part of their jobs as winter overs, Thomas and Alan have to maintain the telescopes they work on. You know, the simplest things, the building is being heated. And so it's just from simple things like that, um, to solving more complex problems with the, the cryogenic systems in the telescope, if there are any, um, just being on hand to fix things like that or, or uh, investigate a source of noise that has come up. But one of the main tasks that we do uh, is greasing the telescope. You know, it's a large telescope. There's a bunch of large gears. And so we have to keep them all happy. Um, and so that's, pretty fun going out and greasing when it's minus 120 wind chill 
the actual process of greasing just involves us taking a big bucket of this really low viscosity grease that works well in cold weather, taking a big four inch paintbrush and scooping it up and slathering it on. The telescopes are a walk away from the main building where the Wind Rovers live and are obviously outside. It sounds great, getting the chance to work outside, enjoy the sights, experience the auroras, see the snow. But getting there isn't quite so simple. Extra precautions need to be taken. You know, if if you're going outside and the weather might be bad, uh, you have to check in and say, you know, where you're going, how long you expect to be, because, you know, even if you're wearing your full ECW, if you're outside at minus 90, um, after two or three hours, you know, you, the cold just soaks in. And once you get cold, you, you know, there's no warming you up. So uh, you definitely have to take precautions just going outside to do whatever it may be. The actual telescope is about one kilometer away from station, so it's not too far. And on a nice weather day, it, you, know, you can see it. It's right there. It's easy to get to. Um, but if the wind picks up and the snow starts blowing, sometimes you can't see you know, six feet in front of you. Uh, so we have this uh, a line of flags that go all the way out to the telescope, and they're spaced basically every six feet apart. And when you look at that when it's light out, you you think, oh, that's kind of ridiculous. That seems like overkill. But in winter, there have been times where I walk out there and you can only see the next flag ahead of you. Um, so it can be very dangerous just going outside. For Thomas Lepps, winter over on the bicep array, hypothermia isn't a concern when he goes out into the cold. Uh, most of the time, my core is actually pretty comfortable. I mean, on the walk out to the telescope, even at negative 90 and 10 knots of wind, uh, I'm sweating by the time I get out to the telescope. It's about uh, about a mile away, a little less than a mile out, away from station. But he does feel the cold in his fingers and toes, especially when working on the telescope itself. When you're dealing with tiny parts and fiddly tools, the last thing you need is chunky bear claw gloves. So hands sometimes get exposed too. Then it's just a matter of trying to work quickly but precisely. So you're out for a minimal amount of time. You can do sort of a, an awkward windmill technique where you just spin your arm as fast as you can and it pushes the blood out to the tips of your fingers and warms them up. Um, that gives you a little bit of extra time and generally it's last resort, but you can unzip your jacket and put your hands up, you know, under your armpits or inside of uh, the bibs of your, uh, your pants and try and get some time there. But then your core temperature does start dropping pretty quickly. So that's kind of the last resort. I just got to get this last thing done and then uh, you know, go inside and warm up. Life at the South Pole can feel very isolated. Those 40 or so people who live there during the polar winter are the only humans for thousands of miles, which means you do spend a lot of time together. A big part of our job down at South Pole is just keeping each other entertained. Um, there's 40 some odd number of us. And so we really just uh, try and do whatever we can to keep things from getting monotonous down here. Making sure everyone's as entertained as possible while we're going through and getting our our jobs done down here. This includes sports, movie nights, board games, fancy dress, cooking events, amongst other things. Before coming to the South Pole, every person has their regular hobbies and favourite activities, but those aren't always extreme environment friendly. But somehow, despite the extreme weather, 
people manage to maintain certain hobbies. When I first came down, I was just, I think I must have just been getting into distance running. And so I'd probably run one marathon. And I realized that there was this annual marathon that goes on here. And I got to run it uh, the first year that I was down here. And that was awesome. Um, and then I started getting into more distance running and I was like, oh, I wonder if I could, you know, set a record for longest ultra at the South Pole. So in January of 2022, during the polar summer at a balmy minus 34 degrees Celsius or minus 30 Fahrenheit, Alan ran 80 miles at the South Pole in 23 hours and 10 minutes. An insane achievement. But outdoor sports aren't for everyone, especially in this extreme environment. However, it is the perfect place for something else. Astrophotography is a very, very popular pastime down here. Uh, we have aurora pretty much every single day. Um, and the solar cycle is heating up right now. Um, so we had a lot of really spectacular aurora this winter. Despite there being plenty of activities available, cabin fever can set in. You're with the same group of people in a vast expanse of white emptiness for nine months of the year. In winter, you know, you're in the station, you have the windows boarded up because we don't want light pollution. There's sensitive cameras outside and things during the winter. And so you're kind of in this box, you talk to the same 40 people um, and your day to day is more or less the same every day. Sometimes it might be nice to find an escape. So one of the favourite places for a lot of winter overs is in the greenhouse. First of all, we are extremely lucky at South Pole. We have an experimental greenhouse. And so we have a small room that has uh, all edible plants. Um, and a lot of people just will go in there if you're having a bad day or just miss home. You can sit and there's a little couch in the greenhouse you can sit in and watch the plants grow, which is nice. And it's also very bright. Um, so it feels almost like uh, like daylight in there uh, during the six months of darkness. One thing that all the winter overs experience is sensory deprivation. There are certain sounds that become extremely important. One weird example that maybe only people who've been to the South Pole know is when it gets below like minus 60 uh, the sound that your breath makes when it leaves your mouth, it just instantly freezes and it makes this weird, I don't know what, it's not quite a whistle, but it, you, can, you can hear the breath just freezing instantly. And when it warms up above that temperature and you don't hear that anymore, you, you're like, what's going on? It's weird. And you just, you're just so used to that same sound. And um, another one is, is the snow crunching as you are walking outside. Um, so you're on a big glacier and it's this weird hard packed snow. It's not really snow. It's not really ice. It's kind of in between. And it makes this really loud kind of uh, noise that you can kind of hear from everywhere as you're walking. It's not like just your feet. And so that's a, a strange sensation that you get. And I always like, yeah, it's kind of a, a South Pole-related noise that you, you hear, and you're like, ah, yeah, I'm back at South Pole. Mm -hmm. 
As Alan was speaking, you could hear the sound of someone walking through the hollow snow. This sound, along with the flags flapping in the wind and the plane flying over, were all recorded by Thomas Lepps whilst he was at the South Pole. But the biggest sensory difference is a lack of smells. There's a huge smell deprivation when you're here. I remember in 2020, a friend of mine had, uh, it was like an essence of dirt or something. It was some kind of weird scent and it just blew my mind. I smelled it in October and it was just like, oh my gosh, it just like threw me back into, you know, being outside somewhere. There's no, nothing biological for hundreds of miles in any direction. And it's two miles of ice down to the ground. So there's just absolutely no smells outside. And it's just too cold for smells anyway. And then on station, I mean, there are not many smells either, you know. Uh, so at South Pole, you only get two, two minute showers a week. And so you would think, oh man, I'm going to smell terrible and everyone's going to smell terrible. But you can't really smell anything. It's so dry here that smells don't really precipitate through the air. Um, and so <laughs> there is a, a South Pole, uh, uh, not euphemism, but there's, there's four smells, the four Fs, which are feet, fart, fuels, and food. Delightful. As food is one of the four smells that the Winter Rovers experience, it becomes an important part of their lives at the South Pole. With routines becoming monotonous, finding ways to keep things interesting in the food department can make or break someone's day. Good homemade bread or a cookie that reminded you of your childhood and stuff like that. And those little creature comforts can really help push you through. Baker is wonderful. Um, thank God she is here. The bread and the desserts have been fantastic this year. So give her some props when, she, when you talk to her. My name is Kelly Murphy. I am 24 and I was working as the breakfast slash pastry sous chef down at the South Pole. Um, so I basically handled every aspect of the breakfast meal and all of the baking type stuff. So everything from like breads to cookies to cakes to pizza doughs and just about anything I could figure out how to make down there. Props were duly given, of course, but just like the scientists working with the telescopes, the extreme conditions made baking quite a challenge. The thing that I had to deal with the most was definitely like altitude, the fact that, I mean, it's a desert, so it's super dry, and product management. Whatever we have in February has to last until, you know, September. One of Kelly's main ingredients was yoghurt. To make yoghurt at the South Pole, Kelly had to use a type of dehydrated milk powder that had bacteria in it. She would mix it with water, incubate it for 24 hours, and voila, yoghurt. But a couple months into the season, I did the math and realised I would only last until about the middle of the season. And the thing is, I was so unwilling to let go of it because it was so, <laughs> it was just so useful in so many applications. Think ice cream, cakes, frozen yoghurt, marinades, smoothies, the list goes on. So she tried. I tried a whole bunch of different things. Like I tried making it with citric acid. I tried making it with lemon juice. I tried making it with like a copper penny. None of these tricks were working. But after a bit more research, Kelly came across a recipe that had first been tried by someone in India. The stems of chili, so the green part, contains the bacteria that is beneficial to making yogurt. And in our greenhouse, we had like a whole chili pepper plant. 
So I basically just figured out how many like chili pepper stems per, per liter of milk you would need to make yogurt. And it ended up working out phenomenally. It actually made, people said it was tastier than the yogurt that we were making with um, the pre-done stuff before. So that was definitely my biggest mad scientist moment where I was just kind of like frantically stirring three different pots of like milk that had different things in it for like a couple of weeks trying to figure out the right method. And it worked and we had yogurt all season. When I spoke to Alan and Thomas, they were coming close to the end of their season on the ice, after having spent many months in sensory deprivation and taking care of their telescopes. Coming off the ice is an experience in itself, they both told me. That first moment when you hit the tarmac when you land in New Zealand, Thomas said, is unforgettable. It's spectacular. It's like you have a superpower. You can smell everything... Um, and the airport in Christchurch is, I want to say, at least 10 miles from the coast and you get off the plane and immediately I could smell the ocean and then there's a great botanical garden in Christchurch and so the next morning, everyone who got off the ice together that uh, that night, we went to uh, the botanical gardens and just stuck our faces in every flower, plant, everything um, and it was perfect timing because there were baby ducks in the river And so we looked like crazy people. We were just wandering around, sticking our face in every foliage that we could and, uh, you know, just uh, enjoying being back in nature. Alan had been at the station for a year and he was ready to go home. It's funny, my my parents also asked me, what are you going to do when you get back? And I, you know, my my first response is literally, I just want to sit outside and enjoy the sunshine, have a beer outside somewhere and just enjoy the weather um, because... Here, you know, as, as awesome and beautiful as the nights are, you know, you have to just be fully closed, wear so many clothes. You only have a little slit for your eyes to see, and you never get to feel just like sunshine and warmth when you're outside and like a warm breeze. Um, so that is, you know, what I look forward to most. When I spoke to Kelly Murphy, she'd already left the ice and had spent her first day in New Zealand. Very first thing I did when I got to the hotel was take the longest, hottest shower that I could. I think I was in there for like a half hour, just enjoying it. And then the second thing that I did when I wake up was, woke up was go and get a cold brew and a really nice breakfast with like poached eggs and real hollandaise and real greens. And that was incredible. <laughs> it's the little things. <laughs> Thank you to Thomas Lepps, Alan Foster and Kelly Murphy for taking the time to share their polar stories with us. A special thank you also goes to Valmar Kurol and Michael Stillborn, the musicians and composers behind the music you've been hearing throughout this episode. The music, inspired by Kurol's fascination with Antarctica, was a perfect match to the episode. The pieces come from movements of their Antarctica Symphony, called Antarctica's Four Seasons and Telescopes to the Stars.